Okay, we're continuing our series called Effective Corporate Kingdom Prayer Series. Effective Corporate Kingdom Prayer. And we're still in chapter one. We did a, one week was an introduction where we covered uh, kind of an overview of all the titles and all the things that we'll be covering. And that itself is a very important and good message. Um, then we last week was uh, chapter 1A, small 1. Today is chapter 1A, small 2. And what we're talking in 1A about is that effective corporate kingdom prayer, what the whole series is about, that that is the catalyst to a visitation from God. God's goal, if you from Genesis to Revelation, is to dwell among his people and to dwell in such a way that his spirit is made manifest in a sense that you can know that you know that you know it. That, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened to Christianity uh, or gradually as it encountered Greco-Roman culture and continued to move is gradually the Christianity we have today tends to be very abstract, theoretical, theological. Uh, but God wants his, his uh, church to be full of his spirit in a, in a concrete, tangible, experiential way. And he wants his spirit to be manifest in such a way that it gives him glory, which would include uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, fruits of the Holy Spirit, and, the, and just uh, the glory of God dwelling among his people. And what we're saying here is that prayer is the key to that. That having effective corporate kingdom prayer is the key to God moving in his people. Now, it's also very clear that when God is dwelling among his people in manifest tangible ways, that he works out from there to reconcile people to himself, to ransom them, to redeem them, to heal their lives. According to the scriptures, all mankind since Adam and Eve is born out of fellowship with God, they're born with their spiritual spirit dead. They're born with a propensity to run from God. And um, with that in view, um, what God does uh, when, he, when we pray is he comes and dwells in our midst. And he works out from his church to introduce himself to and reconcile himself to the world around us. That is the purpose of signs and wonders. That's the purpose of healings, deliverance. God is in, in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. So our series theme verse is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we're also looking at James 5.16 as a theme verse. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So this verse is actually telling us that there is more or less effective prayer. Okay, uh, there's prayer that's ineffective and there's prayer that's effective. And what we want is not to have more prayer meetings. We want to have more prayer meetings that cause more of God's glory to dwell among us, that cause the Spirit of God to descend in our midst, that cause the purposes of God to be birthed and established. We don't just want to pray for the sake of uh, that we have nothing better to do, 
We want to pray because God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people to birth and establish his purposes, as he's made abundantly clear in Scripture, and we'll look at from lots and lots of ways in this series. Now, we also had a couple quotes at the beginning, one of which is, when all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. Uh, You know, we've admitted that uh, if you really look at Grace Christian Fellowship over the, our short history, uh, we probably that's probably been the most significant shortcoming that we have as, as a fellowship and as a people is we haven't had uh, much of a sustained prayer effort. And we need uh, literally dozens of little prayer meetings of two people, three people, five people, 10 people, 20 people. Uh, but we need to seek the Lord together. And so when all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. This series will not accomplish our goal if our faith to actually labor in prayer, you know, laboring in prayer is one of the toughest things to build up faith for. It totally doesn't make any sense in the natural. In fact, theologically, God foreknows and and preordains all things. And some people misunderstand the sovereign eternal decrees of God, as we've been talking about in the uh, in the Kingdom of God series on Sunday mornings, some people uh, misunderstand God's sovereign eternal decrees as an excuse for inactivity. But actually, it should be uh, the reason that that you have faith for activity because God has chosen to accomplish his purposes through the prayers of his people. And his purposes will be established. The real question actually in the Christian life is not whether God will do the things that we need to see him do, but whether you're going to get in on it or not. Whether you're going to uh, end up being a, uh, in in having the privilege to be used of God uh, to see some of these things come about. So, um, quote two here is, prayer is a dynamic interplay between God and man. God in us, whereby his redemptive kingdom purposes are birthed and established. When we say a dynamic interplay, we mean listening, communication, dialogue, a transaction. It's a two-way street, and there has to be the presence of God in the prayers, or it's a dead thing. Now, uh, last week we began to deal with prayer as a catalyst of visitation, and uh, if you'll Look at point D at the bottom of your outline. We talked a little bit about the idea that there's a spiritual climate or atmosphere. Families have them. Households have them. Church buildings have them. Church bodies have them. But there is a spiritual climate or a spiritual atmosphere. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so um what we really want to be seeking god for is to change the spiritual climate in our lives individually in our houses and our single brothers households and our in our married couples households in our, uh, in our church building, in our church body, we want there to be a, a presence of God 
uh, so noticeable that people that hardly know the Lord pick up on it in the parking lot. Now that takes a diligent travail and labor of prayer. There is no birth of the things of God without a without labor, or without travail. The kind of thing that uh, the Bible uses labor as a metaphor because seeing God do what he's called you to do and called us together to do really takes the kind of painstaking effort that birthing a baby takes. Uh, but it takes that sustained over time by a group of people. Now, um, that's uh, a hard thing to do, but Jesus in Matthew 18 says, uh, again, I say to you that if two or you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together, there I am in the midst. There's, there's a, when, when we make symphony together, when we agree, sumpheo is the Greek, when we are, are walking in love for one another, like the Psalms uh, says in Psalm, I always forget if it's 133 or 131, but I think it's 133. Behold how pleasant, good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell to, together in unity. When we have unity in our heart, when we have mutual respect, when we have service, when we have honor, when we pray, believe in prayer enough to pray and to pray regularly and often, when that happens in our midst, Christ begins to build an atmosphere of his presence. There he is in the midst. Now, flipping over, I just want to uh, say one more thing from last week before we move into this week's material. When you combine the ideas of prayer and being a dynamic interplay and a catalyst being something that causes an increase in the rate of change, visitation with being an atmosphere of the outpouring of God's power and glory and healings and miracles and reconciliation and dynamic worship and all the things that grow out of a of a people that people are living you know if you if you have the lord in your life you'll be a consistent worshiper you'll be hungry to read the scripture you'll be leading others to christ uh you won't just be attending a church you'll be you'll be engaging the lord together as a people in in every way shape and form so uh, when you combine these things, uh, effective corporate prayer is a spiritual catalyst to the initial and the sustained and the increasing corporate community-wide, that is the whole body of Christians, uh, manifest presence of God out of which his redemptive, miraculous kingdom purposes are birthed and established. People are always asking, what is the will of God? In the will of God, Jesus summed it up and said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The will of God is in John 3, 17, when he says, the Lord didn't come to condemn the world, but so that the world may be saved through him. We already had, we, if, if all he wanted to give us was depression and, and addiction and, and all the things that, that are the out, vital outworkings of a person who doesn't know the Lord and their lifestyle and so forth, we had that. You don't need to read the Bible to uh, hear God's voice or to fellowship with his people or worship him to have spiritual death. You had that already. But to enter into the vital signs of life, of hungering for his word and 
and desiring to witness to others and having a passion for for that for the lost and uh in a in a joy in in seeking and knowing him uh to have these things uh takes uh god's presence it takes god speaking to you it takes not being theoretically in agreement with the ideas of Christianity, but experiencing the voice of God speaking them to you. Now, with saying that prayer is a catalyst of visitation, which we spent uh, 54 minutes on last week, I want to tonight get into uh, seven biblical examples of personal corporate prayer that uh, at times was with or without fasting, because fasting intensifies prayer. But I want to give us seven biblical examples of times when corporate prayer, or in some cases individual prayer on behalf of the community or or the body of believers, uh, led to a visitation of God, to the purposes of God being birthed, established, sustained, and ongoing. That's really what a visitation of God is. So, in Luke, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, now, we, we uh, talked about this last week, but I kind of want to give it to us in more detail. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And... Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And it says, in the day of Her- days of Herod, one of the things I love about the Bible is that our God is the God that created the time-space continuum. He created history, and the Bible always does things in a historical context. And so it'll say, in the days of King Hezekiah or such and such. When you read the Minor Prophets, one of the things I like to do when I'm reading the Minor Prophets is line them up with what kings were were uh, leading Israel and Judah at the at the time. So I get a feel of what was happening in, in Israel and Judah at that time. Uh, so in this case, it's in the days of Herod, king of Judah. This is uh, approximately somewhere between 0 B.C. And, and 4 B.C., about 40 years after Caesar Augustus had declared himself emperor and had begun to use the titles King of Kings and Lord of Lords to describe himself and the Son of God and the cult of emperor worship is that the emperor of Rome was of God had replaced what was called the Roman Republic with its senatorial view of uh, government and so forth. About uh, This is about 40 years later. So in those days, Herod who was a a king under the Romans, king of Judea. Uh, There was a certain priest named Zacharias, uh, modern translations sometimes say Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blameless in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So what this means, righteousness is by faith. By Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There's this modern idea that uh, Old Testament people were made righteous by their efforts and their works. But true righteousness is by faith, working by grace, working through faith that God, Jesus, is the author and the perfecter of, and it leads you to be blameless in your character. If you have true righteousness in your life, you will live in a godly manner. And so uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a couple 
among a t- in a time period in Israel when many were just religious, when many did not know the Lord, when the uh, time period when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and different uh, sects and parties were uh, creating a great deal of religious confusion, a time very similar to ours. And these two people were kind of uh, still making their way through amidst of all that religious confusion, all the wrong expectations of what the coming of the Messiah would mean and everything else. These two, by faith and by the grace of God working in their life, were walking in his commandments and were relating to God in a relationship, and they were pleasing to God. They were really born-again Christians looking forward to the promises that God would fulfill. Just as born-again Christians today look back to the promises that God has fulfilled. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And that's interesting because it was a, a societal. The, today, like if there's many career women who don't have children, and 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 all, you know, many people never get married, and have children, and all this kind of thing. But in that time period, to not get, uh, to not ha- to be married and not have children was actually a social. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not an enigma, but a social uh, stigma. Is thank you. Uh, 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 it was, there was a stigma attached to it. It was almost like, what did you do wrong? There was kind of a. And so these two, interestingly, had this wonderful relationship with God, yet God had had taken them through some hard times, including that they were barren. Now it came about while Zechariah was performing his priestly service before God. In the order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside. Always like uh, when there's a little thunder to confirm the verse you're reading. That's actually the verse I wanted to focus on is verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside. Hear that. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer. Uh, were in prayer outside. There was a corporate prayer meeting going on that that apparently included a multitude of people. It was a big meeting. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them standing to the right of the altar of incense, and Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and will... You will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. In other words, he'll be a Nazarite like Samson was in the Old Testament. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. One of the reasons we are very pro-life is because it's very clear that people can actually come to know the Lord and experience his presence and be filled with his spirit even in their mother's womb. Um, as I've experienced with many people. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as the forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, turn with me to Malachi 4, 6. We're still on point uh, on the... At the top of your, the backside of your page, uh, Roman numeral 5.A, more thunder. Love to have a thunderstorm while you're speaking. In Malachi uh, chapter 4, God promises that days are coming 
burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evil doers will be like chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, and so forth. Um, go back to actually to chapter 3 even, and he says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in, behold, he is coming. Now, uh, at the end of verse chapter 4, verse 6, it says he will restore the hearts of the... Uh, behold, I'm going to send, verse 5, uh, well, verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So Luke is quoting that verse and quoting that whole idea with regard to who John is. So, again, it's time. Malachi was written in approximately 397 B.C. This happens approximately 4 B.C. There's about 393 years in between these. God has spoken nothing on the authoritative level that could be considered Scripture in those days, not that there weren't prophecies, not that he wasn't working among his people some, but it was kind of a time of dryness and spiritual confusion. Some good things happened, the rise of the synagogue system, so forth. There were things, you know, God was still among his people. But he's promising a different kind of visitation, a visitation where he's going to send someone he's calling Elijah, and Jesus called John the Baptist Elijah, that is the spirit of Elijah. Elijah was, is the fountainhead or the forerunner of all the prophets. So he's going to send a great prophet. Who had, and Jesus actually said that John the Baptist of all those born among women was the greatest uh, from up until now, up until his time, and, uh, you know, and so forth. So uh, th this, this coming of John the Baptist is a huge deal. It's a necessary step to prepare for the Christ himself. And God's people are in a time of great spiritual dryness and great confusion. But I, what I don't want you to miss is that at the time, Zechariah was chosen by Lot to go into the temple, and before the angel came and appeared to him, the multitude of the people were outside praying. Now, the scripture doesn't just throw that in uh, at no extra charge, so to speak, as I always joke, for no reason. That's vital to, to what's happening here. The people need to be outside seeking God, praying, if God is going to suddenly appear in his temple if he's going to bring the messenger of the covenant, if he's going to bring the restoration of the covenant, if he's going to bring the spirit and power of Elijah back to his church, if he's going to raise up people calling us back to the biblical message of the kingdom of God, the biblical message of, re of God redeeming all of mankind, if in a time when God's people are, are reductionist in their retreating and they're from the battle, they're confused, they're, their expectations are low, if God's going to turn that around, God's people have to pray. And, the, and that prayer has to release the spirit of Elijah coming back to proclaim restoration, repentance, 
You're, you're running from the battle. Turn around. God's glory will fill the whole earth. As the, the glory of God will fill the earth as, uh, as the waters cover the seas. The expectations of God's people in Jesus' day and at this time was that God, it was so dark and these Romans were so wicked and they person, they were the Roman Empire personified the kingdom of darkness and Satan and, and the, you know, all the, the bondage of, of Israel going back to Pharaoh and Egypt, they were the same metaphor. And the only way this could happen would be by a powerful prince coming who would set them free in some military cataclysmic way, something like Moses did, something like David did, establishing a geopolitical kingdom and God was actually about to do something much bigger. I actually have some uh, friends that I think are sincere Christians, however, they don't understand much about God or the Bible, who actually believe that what we do need is more government programs and more money for education and more this and more that, more government controls, more regulations and so forth, because they see only the government is big enough to restrain all this evil and bring about good. Of course, that's totally misguided because the government is full of misguided, sinful, wicked, prideful, selfishly ambitious, greedy, on-the-take people, as they always will be. Because man, is his heart is desperately corrupt. And the only thing actually big enough is a grassroots kingdom of God movement where God actually sweeps the land and changes hearts and lives, granting deep conviction of sin and deep repentance and deep uh, using of your freedoms and liberty. Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Wherever there's freedom to serve Jesus Christ and to serve one another and makes people, instead of users and abusers, makes them servants of one another. That's the only thing big enough to bring about any good. The governments of man are much too small to bring about any good. They can only bring evil because they're administered by people full of evil wickedness in their hearts. That's why you get these doctrines like, well, it doesn't matter what their private lives are like, it's what their social policies are. Nonsense. I don't want anyone leading my life that I can't trust to, pay, to keep his covenants in his marriage or keep his covenants in his finances, to uh, walk with uh, humility and integrity, to not be selfishly ambitious, not caring about offices and powers and names, but wants to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the only one big enough to bring that about is our Lord Jesus Christ and the restoration of his true church. Now, that's uh, our first of seven examples. I'm going to get through as many as I can tonight. And then next week, we're going to look at eight famous Bible fasts and their results that are uh, point six. And I'll get through as many of the eight, which won't be very many, but hopefully you'll read the rest for yourself. Let's go to Acts chapter one. Now, just to give some context in Acts chapter 1, 
in John's account of the Last Supper, which is John 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says the most about the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit that he says anywhere. Because he's coming to the very end of his time with the disciples, and it's all going to be by their continuing to do what he did the same way he did as a human being by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though he is and always was and always will be God, and he walked among us as God divine in the flesh, he chose to limit himself to his humanity, leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, letting the Holy, the, letting God, the Holy Spirit, do His ministry through Him, as His, so that He could model that for us. And I don't have time to develop this, but in John fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, He go over and over again, makes statements about the Holy Spirit, saying, "It's your, to your advantage that I go away, because then, when the Holy Spirit comes, greater works than I do. The Holy Spirit will lead you in all the truth. He'll bear witness of me, and so forth." Then again, after his resurrection in Luke 24 and in Acts 1, he tells them that the Holy Spirit's going to come. Now, in Acts 1, we need to keep in mind that uh, the only, that when Jesus says uh, this in Acts 1, verse 4, it says, gathering them together, that is the disciples, he commanded them. He didn't give them a suggestion. He commanded them. Not to go like wimps and run to Galilee, and where it's safer from the Jews, nor to go out and start doing their ministry. Neither of those two extremes. Don't run from the battle, and don't engage in the battle. Just wait. Uh, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father has promised, or the promise of the Father. And then he and then he defines it. For John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, in verse 6 and 7, I don't have time to develop that. I've developed it elsewhere. The disciples demonstrate that they still don't get it. They actually have more of the religious confused paradigms of the, uh, of the cultural uh, Jewishness, and very similar to our evangelical Christianity today, in their hearts and minds than they actually have the real biblical ideas of what God wants to do. So Jesus says, you... Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and it will work from, through the whole earth. Because the kingdom is always from the inside out. It's from the bottom up. It's from one place to the next until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's how the kingdom is coming. They thought the kingdom was going to come with you know, from the top down in one geographical, geopolitical, cataclysmic event by the, having the right government in place, throwing out those bad Romans and so forth. And, you know, honestly, I, I, I find it crazy that various kinds of Christians hook their, their uh, whether they believe in the power of government, so they want more of what the Democratic Party wants, or they want they don't believe in the power of government, and they see the dangers of government, so they want what, more of what the Tea Party and the, and the you know more conservative Republicans used to want. None of that's going to bring the kingdom of God. None of that changes from the inside out, from the bottom up. None of, none of, none of, it, none of it is going to restore marriage. Yes, there were things like in the 
around 1970 when they changed the marriage laws and so forth that contributed to the divorce rate climbing. Laws matter a little. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is the sexual revolution and the narcissistic uh, selfishness of our culture guaranteed that the divorce rate was going up and the laws just reflected that people wanted to get out of marriage easier and they wanted to not have to be bound to what really is best for their kids. They wanted what was best for me in, in my shallow opinion of me now. And laws always reflect that stuff. So believing you're going to change things by changing political parties or central governments and stuff is just a bit naive. It doesn't take into account the depth of human sin, nor the greatness and power of God and his cross and, and the, his ability to, by power, restore his church, which is his means for restoring cultures. And nothing else is big enough. Well, anyway, this is what the disciples were expecting, but Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, what's important, if you look at, uh, you'll have to just see them in the notes. I'm not going to turn there. To actually, the, the whole tie-in of speaking in tongues with the Holy Spirit that was about to happen in Pentecost, there were only about three scriptures up till then that gave a clue that that was going to be a part of it. Mark 16, 17, Jesus said, those who believe in me will speak in new tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 21, late, hadn't even been written yet. But when it was, it, it, he quotes Isaiah 28, 11, that I'll speak to these people by, you know, stammering tongues and so forth. So really, there were basically two references that you might expect something to do with speaking in tongues. My point being is they didn't really know what to expect when the Holy Spirit's coming. They just knew that Jesus had said in John 15, 26, that he'll be my witness, that he'll bear witness of me. They knew in John 16, 7 through 13, that he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And they knew that he would lead and guide them into all the truth, John 16, 13. They knew that he would bring in, John 14, 26, that he would bring into your remembrance. They knew that he would do greater works. They had some expectations that the Holy Spirit was going to be similar or the same, as what he had done through Jesus. They knew there were going to be ongoing healings and ongoing miracles and ongoing manifestations of the Spirit. But I don't think they totally knew what to expect. I just think that's an important point to, to get across. So what did they do? Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now that is an important verse. You've got to get your Bible open and look at that. Acts 1.14, when Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you, the promise of the Father, which means, and then he defined that as John, that you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and he further defined it that you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses and it'll spread through all the earth. Their response was to start praying in the upper room while they were waiting every day. Verse 15 tells us there were about 120 people. Now, I find that further amazing because it's, it seems that as you read the Gospels, when it talks about how there were others who traveled with them, and John, in Luke 10, Jesus sent out uh, 70 others, depending on what, tran what, what Greek version you're using, 70 or 72. Um, I think the, the more accurate is the, the 70. 
that's another whole point because it represents all the nations and sending people, you know, the sending his kingdom gospel to all nations. Ne nevertheless, um, when, when uh, Jesus tells them this is going to happen, their response was to stay in Jerusalem where it was dangerous. They didn't flee to Galilee where it was safe. They stayed in Jerusalem and they stayed in the midst of the hard place to be. That's, that's a very important prayer. You know, interestingly, churches have gone to easier and easier and easier neighborhoods in American Christianity, and we've gotten more and more compromised with the culture and with, with humanism and, and less and less, more and more shallow ideas and more and more commercialism and uh, this kind of thing. And, and because we, we, want, we want to run from the tough neighborhoods and the tough assignments, they stayed and they prayed every day and it says they were all in one accord they were all praying they were all continually praying in one mind so they weren't even having a lot of people miss the meetings do you know that we haven't had a meeting on a sunday morning in this church for several years where everybody came i think it would be amazing if just everyone who regularly comes 75% of the time if they all came at once. We actually haven't had such a meeting. We've been close a couple times. Um, nevertheless, another factor I find interesting is that about 120 followed with Jesus in his, in his earthly ministry, and that's the ones who seem to have enough faith to, to do what he said. However, 1 Corinthians 15 brings out that he appeared to over 500 people in his resurrection form. Do you know that people can act? There are many good Christian uh, books that follow what's called evidential apologetics that teach us the evidences for the resurrection and how historically verifiable it is that it would stand up in a court of law. But that doesn't, that, that doesn't change people. These pe people saw Jesus and still didn't have enough faith to do what he said. A Christian is someone who has enough faith in him to, to live his life according to what Jesus said instead of what they say. Now, moving on, in Acts 2, they were all together in one place. In Acts 2, four, then the Holy Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind, fills the house, tongues of fire. They all begin to speak in tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance and so forth. And then they're accused of being drunk. Uh, then they proclaim the gospel, and 3,000 people come in in one day. All of this is directly a result of their, what Jesus prophesied, and their on the basis of their faith in his word, they're praying in Acts 4, 1, 14, and 15, and, and Acts 2, 1. For that 10-day period between when Jesus said that and when the Holy Spirit was outpoured, they prayed every day, all of them. How many of us could labor in prayer for anything 10 days with everybody showing up? I don't know. My point being is that prayer is the catalyst of this visitation. And this visitation goes on to the point where after the 3,000 were added, look at Acts 2.42. It says... Uh, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Christians are always trying to get back to just that. If we could get to that level, 
of lifestyle, of community and zeal together, where we don't just hang out together and go to go to Dublin pub together or whatever and get a beer and some fries, uh, but we worship together, we pray together, we we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking the bread, to fellowship. Fellowship is always a koinonia. Isn't just that we hang out and talk about our golf game or or our favorite, you know, movies or or whatever. I, I, you know, I'm all for we're not being overly religious that we don't have, but we're underly spiritual. Does that you know? I am not for being overly religious and never talking about. <laughs> Never having a hamburger and a beer at Dublin Pub or talking about uh, that I was glad that San Antonio won the, the finals or, or some natural subject, you know, investments or whatever you want to talk about. But I think that sometimes that's all we talk about. We avoid the intimacy of real fellowship because it's that causes you to humble yourself, to confess your sins, and to focus on the Lord Jesus and on spiritually intimate issues. And that is, is the, the basis of that they were committed not only to that fellowship, but to the prayers. In fact, an interesting verse in Acts 3, 1, continuing, it says that Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour is the same hour that the Holy Spirit was outpoured. Maybe that's why they adopted that. But this is obviously sometime later, maybe days, maybe, maybe weeks. But they had a lifestyle where there was actually an hour they could call the hour of prayer. What's our hour of prayer? Now, also, when after they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer, it says everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, somewhere around the third, fourth, or fifth song on Friday nights and on Sunday mornings, most people start getting some sense of God's presence and flow. That's not what is happening here. Everyone kept all the time feeling a sense of awe at God's manifest presence in their midst. This is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about prayer being a catalyst to visitation. This came about from, you know, prayer is based on two things. It's based on, based, based on one you're seeing in the scripture that God wants to do more than you think, where your expectations have been too low, that God wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And then secondly, it's based on out of that, having the faith to have dynamic kick butt, stomp on demon heads, intercede, cry out to God for mercy, uh, activated by the power of the Holy Spirit, prayer. Not mamby-pamby prayer means, Lord, I pray you'll help brother so-and-so and da-da-da and, and giving him our petitions, but praying in the declared purposes of God in Scripture that he's going to restore all things and that a stepping stone to restoring all that was all the fallen world is to restore his church and as a step in that. Now, people who believe that pray with power and with authority and with longing and with zeal, and they pray all the time. Well, let's see if I can fit one more in. I, uh, I started it. 
yeah, I, I can fit one more in. Uh, let me look and see if I want to do Acts 4 the most. Yeah, I might even spend an extra week on some of these. I don't know. Um, let's go to Acts 4. In verse 13, I like this because it says that the Sanhedrin, who were professionally educated religious people, they observed the confidence of Peter and John. Where does our confidence come from? That they were uneducated and untrained men in a formal sense. They had been discipled by Jesus. They were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. That's where they, they knew that's where their confidence and authority came because Jesus taught, remember Matthew 7, as, not as the scribes and, the, and Pharisees, but as, as one having authority. And now Peter and John are doing the same. So they command them not to, to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they threaten them. And in verse 20, they respond, or in verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking the things we see and hear, or we've seen and heard. Right? Now, that's the only place I've ever seen in the Bible where basically someone says, I can't help it. I just can't stop. That, it, that God actually endorses their answer. You know, we all have told God, you know, there's a, there's a rock song. Uh, this, none of you are old enough to probably know. Some of you probably have aunts and uncles or grandparents or something. But there was a band named Leonard Skinner. And they had, uh, they had a, uh, a song that uh, one of the great lines from was, Lord knows I can't change. And, you know, that's the cult. You know, sinful people are always saying, well, Lord, I can't help it. I, I can't overcome my lack of discipline, or I can't overcome my lack of zeal, or I can't overcome this besetting sin, or I can't overcome my, my mean, being mean or my anger management problem, or whatever their issue is. But they're saying... This is the only place where God says nonsense to all that, except in this one place where they say, we can't stop speaking about Jesus. <laughs> wow. Okay, now they go back, and they're threatened, and, you know, that they'll be arrested and beaten and these kind of things. So in verse 23, when they had rele been released, they went to their own companions. That is, they went back to the church. They actually went to John Mark's house. Uh, his mother uh, had, was one of those who followed with Christ. And they uh, reported all that, that the chief priests and the elders had said. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. And they said, here's what we would say. Oh, God, they threatened us that if we speak in the name of Jesus, we're going to get arrested. Oh, my God. The Republicans and the Democrats are getting more and more anti-Christian. And it's more and more going to be hard to be a Christian in America. And we might actually start getting arrested. And the Holy Spirit was poured out and said, stop being whiners. No, I'm just kidding. They, you know, the Bible has a view of suffering that it's a joy, that it's a privilege to suffer rejection for the name of Christ. So they cry out and they say, uh, they say, uh, oh, uh, they say, they lift their voices to God with one accord, that one mind again, that whole word, one accord, and said, oh, Lord. It is thou who didst make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, why did the Gentiles rage 
and the people's device a futile thing. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're quoting Psalm 2, by the way, if you don't know where that's from. First two verses. For truly in this, which is considered one of the great messianic psalms, one of the great psalms uh, prophesying the coming of Christ. And they say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, a neutral government. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Whom thou didst send among Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose had predestined to occur. See, even the betrayal, the false trial, the Romans crucifying, all of that was according to his predestined plan to put the stroke of judgment on his son that was due his people Israel and that was due us. And they talk about how Pontius Pilate, and and then they basically say this, Oh God, help us hide out and not get arrested in caves and things. Is that what they say in verse 29? I think that's what we would pray. I really do. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all kinds of us. You know, we hardly ever witness to our friends because we're afraid they might not like us. <laughs> These guys are being threatened with being arrested and killed. And their response was, Lord, Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak the word with all confidence. While thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. That's a, a, a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is among you when the signs and wonders take place. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's interesting because many of the people in this prayer meeting were were in Acts 2. So apparently, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And you need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And you need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And the sign that the Holy Spirit is among us is that we have this kind of prayer that yields this kind of results. When they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Has that been the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That God enabled us to speak the word of God with boldness? Have you actually ticked anybody off for Jesus' name and Jesus' sake? Jesus ticked people off so much they thought they had to kill him. And And he promised that if you walked in his name, you'd be persecuted. When's the last time you were actually persecuted for righteousness instead of being dorky? God, help us. God, visit us. God, teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that these podcasts would be listened to by people in Grace Christian Fellowship, that we would become a culture of prayer, a people of prayer, that we would have learn how to pray with effectiveness, with power, that we would learn how to pray according to your word, that we would learn how to pray in an intercessory way, and that we would learn how to pray doing spiritual warfare, and that we would learn how to advance your kingdom through corporate prayer. Amen.